Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome everybody to episode 13 of Push Dose EMS. My name is Jeff Matcha, uh, be your host today. I'm the Clinical Education QA Manager for Milwaukee County Office of Emergency Management. Uh, joining me today is a is the usual crew. So going down my list for welcomes, uh, System Medical Director, Dr. Ben Weston. Welcome, Dr. Weston. Thanks, Jeff. Happy to be here. Uh, then I have QA Supervisor, Linda Matrish. Welcome, Linda. Hi, everybody. And then your EMS Division Director, Mr. Dan Pojar. Welcome, Dan. Hey, Jeff and everyone. Uh, joining us as a special guest this week, uh, our Pediatric Emergency Medicine uh, Fellow, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Dr. Daphne Branham. Welcome, Dr. Branham. Thanks for having me. Uh, then I see EMS Fellow, Dr. Luke Grover. Welcome, Dr. Grover. Hey, Jeff. Thanks a lot. And into more of the medical direction team, Assistant Medical Director for Education, Dr. Matt Chin. Dr. Chin, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me, Jeff. And last but certainly not least, uh, Assistant Medical Director for QA, Dr. Tom Engel. Welcome, Dr. Engel. Thanks. Happy to be here, Jeff. And we will have one more special guest uh, coming up from the American Red Cross. Uh, Lori works with our CARES team. Uh, she'll be joining us in just a few minutes. So stay tuned for that. Uh, I want to welcome everybody to this episode of the podcast. Uh, where we really were digging into cardiac arrest this week or this month and looking at what happens in cardiac arrest, how to care for those patients, and then what kind of data we're collecting and how that's impacting our patient care policies and guidelines. So we'll be getting into that momentarily, uh, but as always to kick us off, Dan, any updates from the system office? Hey, Jeff. Yeah, just a couple things here. Uh, one for the system. Uh, happy belated EMS week to everyone. Thank you for the service that you continue to provide uh, as excellent EMS uh, healthcare workers to the citizens of the county. And then uh, just one other note today, I think I'm pretty excited uh, to have this discussion about the CARES data. Uh, as an EMS system, as most of you know, the leadership from each organization, so that's namely the fire departments, the Medical College of Wisconsin and OEM, um, seek partnership with each other uh, through basically an agreement. And we have decided... Uh, over the next couple of years to tackle cardiac arrest and specifically bystander intervention over the next couple of years here. So there's a five-year project in place to assess how to increase bystander intervention. Uh, this will include uh, developing some community-engaged efforts such as CPR training, trying to get more people logged into the pulse point, et cetera. Um, so certainly excited to, uh, for the podcast today to discuss more of these numbers that you as EMS providers have accomplished as well as some areas to target for improvement. And also, as COVID begins to wind down, OEM is going to be diving deep into some of the data over the past few years to see uh, where, we're, where we were at, where we're at now, and what we could potentially uh, look forward to in the future. So stay tuned for some of that data that will be coming out uh, later on this year. Thanks. And thanks a lot, Dan. Uh, so, yeah, some interesting stuff forthcoming here uh, within the system. Uh, Dr. Weston, any news and updates from the medical direction side? Yeah, thanks, Jeff. So I'll, uh, I'll echo Dan with a happy belated EMS week. Uh, and not just week, it's been certainly a, 
a challenging uh, and tough year for EMS overall, but we're certainly seem to be turning the corner on the pandemic. So uh, better times to come uh, to be sure. So uh, on that front, we continue to offer a vaccine. We will be transitioning the county's role in uh, vaccination from a large scale site to more focused efforts. And so that does mean we're uh, transitioning out of Kosciuszko Community Center. Now that said, uh, if you have not yet gotten your vaccine, uh, we have a few more days at, at Kazi and then we'll be uh, out in the community, but there are still community sites. So you can go to healthymke.com and find a site near you for vaccine. And just as a reminder, no matter where you get the vaccine, uh, the vaccine is always, always free, whether you have insurance or not, nothing out of pocket for the vaccine. Um, next up, uh, just a heads up, I know we've talked about it before, but a reminder uh, for EMS Doc 1. So this is the field vehicle that our medical directors go out in uh, on occasion. We have a big county, so uh, between all the different calls, you won't certainly be seeing us every single day, um, but you will on occasion see us dropping in on your scene. The vast majority of the time we're there for some education on site, some quality improvement, meet the providers, uh, chat with you a bit. So certainly uh, we look forward to seeing you and uh, don't be concerned when we come on your scene. Uh, we're just coming there to, to do some on-scene quality improvement, some on-scene education uh, and a bit of a meet and greet. So occasionally we get called out for a scene, but that's not nearly as common. Uh, next up, just to reiterate, two acronyms here, MTAC and DMIST. So remember MTAC, uh, is how we are presenting, uh, how we ask providers to present uh, radio calls specific for cardiac arrest. So it's a very streamlined format. Uh, it minimizes the time that you need to spend on the radio before getting the answers that you're looking for, uh, minimizes errors, minimizes repeat questions. So please be prepared with that MTAC format when you call in for a online medical control radio call. Uh, and then DMIST, of course, uh, is the acronym for... Um, uh, for traumas when you come into Freightert uh, with a trauma patient. So review that uh, as you're heading into the trauma bay uh, to prepare to present. Uh, and then lastly, uh, we're talking today all about cardiac arrest. So cardiac arrest is something we talk about a lot. And why do we talk about cardiac arrest so much? It's one of the highest acuity conditions we have, one of the highest acuity conditions we deal with. Um, and it's also a complex condition. Uh, there are a lot of different factors to consider in many, many cardiac arrests. And it's a, a condition where the specific interventions that you do can make a huge difference to that patient's outcome. So that's what we're going to focus on today, looking at the CARES data, understanding what specific interventions you can modify uh, to enhance that patient's outcome as much as possible. Thank you so much. I'll hand it back to you, Jeff. Thanks, Dr. Weston, and a wonderful segue to get us rolling right into the topic of the day and looking at cardiac arrest. Uh, before we dive real deeply into the data and those CARES reports that we have, uh, I'm going to turn the floor over to Dr. Grover to start with uh, to kind of run us through some of the etiology of cardiac arrest and really what's going on systemically when a cardiac, cardiac arrest occurs. So, uh, Dr. Grover. Absolutely. Thanks a lot, Jeff. Um, so I'm going to start off today again by talking about why our adult patients have cardiac arrests. Uh, and then Dr. Brennan will talk about the differences in our pediatric population. So first to define this idea, and it's pretty basic, but we're talking about sudden cardiac arrest or sudden cardiac death, which is the cessation of cardiac activity with hemodynamic collapse. 
just know it's a difficult thing to study because the vast majority of these patients, of course, aren't on monitors when this happens, which isn't too surprising when your average patient is found at home, PNB. So just know the data here isn't all inclusive. But we do have data from patients who have been monitored in hospital settings or have been on ambulatory monitoring, like Holter monitors, or from patients who have AICDs that record these rhythms during their cardiac arrests. And based on those reports, we can kind of infer what's likely happening in kind of the broader out-of-hospital cardiac arrest population. Most commonly what happens is there seems to be a period of ventricular instability that precedes the cardiac arrest, which can be seen as like ventricular ectopy, such as periods of non-sustained VTAC, which can, which can progress, excuse me, into sustained VTAC um, or right into VFib. These are what we know as, of course, the shockable rhythms. And this is the progression in almost 80% of patients who are identified uh, with these rhythms. You can also have bradycardic arrhythmias or PEA rhythms too, but it's less common overall. And remember that these were just the patients who happened to be monitored. And by the time you kind of arrive on scene, most commonly the presenting rhythm you'll encounter in the pre-hospital setting will be asystole. Now, interestingly, in one retrospective study, about 80% of patients who had a sudden cardiac arrest did have preceding symptoms up to an hour before arresting. And these symptoms most commonly were things like chest pain and trouble breathing, which again, shouldn't be too surprising, but there's also a lot of other non-specific symptoms. So most people feel something is wrong, but unfortunately it's not like just that classic crushing chest pain that leads them to call 911 right away. So then the question, of course, is why people have sudden cardiac arrests. And by far the most common cause is some form of coronary heart disease, which accounts for up to 70% of cases based on autopsies. Classically, this would be like the STEMI that causes an arrest, but actually most of the time it isn't due to an acute MI, but more chronic artery narrowing that causes long-term cardiac injury. Heart failure is also a really common cause. And of course, these disease processes apply more to older populations who develop heart disease over many years with comorbidities. In younger populations, and I mean like patients under 40 years old, sudden cardiac arrest is usually not from coronary artery disease, which again, usually takes many years to develop. And in these younger populations, it's more likely due to structural heart disease. And this includes things like congenital anomalies with the coronary arteries, myocarditis, and various forms of cardiomyopathy, um, the most common being hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. There could also be electrical or conduction issues that predispose patients to sudden cardiac arrest. And this includes things like long QT syndrome, Brugada syndrome, or WPW, which is Wolf-Parkinson-White. And of course, there are, are other etiologies of arrest as well that aren't primarily related to the heart. And this is made up of things like trauma, bleeding, PEs, intracranial hemorrhages, or electrolyte issues like high potassium. So to summarize, what you respond to in the field are cases of sudden cardiac arrest, which most of the time in older populations will be from some degree of coronary artery disease, like STEMIs, or from heart failure, while younger patients, it's more from structural heart issues, like congenital diseases or electrical conduction issues. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Dr. Over. So to summarize, there's a lot of different things that can go wrong and your heart can stop or go into funky rhythms and not perfuse. Uh, and a lot of that, your discussion focused a lot around the elderly population, the older population. Uh, but Dr. Branham uh, has a slightly different perspective in the pediatrics realm. So 
Uh, Dr. Brandon, if you could run us through kind of the etiologies and how pediatric arrests tend to differ from those in adults. Thanks, Jeff. So the differences between pediatric cardiac arrests and adults is that a lot of pediatric arrests are more due to respiratory um, etiologies as opposed to cardiogenic ones, unless they have something structural wrong, like what Dr. Grover just talked about. So for these kids, for kids who end up going into arrest, because respiratory diseases are just more common in kids, um, about 40% of those that they see with arrest, it is because of cardio, or sorry, it's because of respiratory causes. Cardiogenic causes tend to only be about 15%. And then we also see there's indeterminate um, causes when you look at autopsies for why these kids went into arrest. And I think that those cases are more of the kids that we're looking at who have, who potentially died from SIDS um, and resuscitation by the time a provider got to them would be too late. Um, that is actually the same percentage. So it's about 40% of kids in arrest um, are indeterminate cause. Um, so it's an equal split between respiratory and this indeterminate um, cause, whereas cardiogenic causes are actually much lower. There are certain things that are associated with poor outcomes for kids with car in cardiac arrest. If you're an infant, so if you're um, greater than four days, so about a year, that's associated with poor outcomes. If it's unwitnessed, if kids present with asystole, and sometimes it depends on where they are in the country and um, how quickly an EMS provider is able to get to them. That's typically associated with poor outcomes um, for these kids in arrest. Um, for those who um, that improve, improved outcomes, I'm guessing will be very similar to what um, improves outcomes in adults, which is um, bystander CPR. Actually, if you're in the perinatal period, so between zero and three days, and I think that's because, you know, if you have an in-home birth, there are more people, um, like the, the new parents are probably um, at higher alert for what the kid is doing and more willing to call EMS. Whereas if you're in the infant period, um, you might, you know, it might end up being kind of like a SIDS picture. Um, that's actually associated with better outcomes. Um, and um, I did mention uh, by standard CPR. Um, and if it is a witness arrest that is associated with better outcomes. Um, the survival rate after you have a cardiac arrest is similar to adults. Um, so there's not a huge difference depending on what you, what literature you're looking at um, between pediatric and adult um, survival rates. Um, the number of pediatric cardiac arrests are far less than what you see in the adult world. So it's about one fifteenth of um, what you see of the adult rates. Um, and so this is not something that you're going to see very commonly when you're on your, on, on a shift on a typical day. So that's all I got. Thanks. Excellent. Uh, th thanks, Dr. Branham. Uh, so lots of different reasons, depending on age, uh, that we might see someone in cardiac arrest. And we're just going to, we'll, we'll dive into a little bit into, if things go well on that EMS call, that patient was in cardiac arrest, 
uh, things went well during the resuscitation and we did wind up with Rusk. Uh, what are some, uh, bring uh, Dr. Grover back into the conversation, uh, really looking at some of that post-Rusk care, uh, things that we need to watch out for as we're transporting that patient, getting them packaged and off to the EDs. Absolutely. Thanks a lot, Jeff. So yeah, you've responded to that PNB and of course you go through your ACLS and you've got a pulse back, you've got ROSC. So what are the important management aspects to consider now? So ROSC care focuses on identifying and correcting the underlying etiology of the arrest and then supporting hemodynamics to prevent damage to the brain and other organs from that global ischemia uh, from poor perfusion during the arrest. And one of the first and most important diagnostic tests is to get that 12 lead because again, most sudden arrests are due to heart disease and identifying that big STEMI as soon as possible will expedite activation of the cath lab and get the patient to definitive treatment. Outside of a STEMI, the ECG can also give clues to other possible causes like non-STEMIs based on other ischemic patterns. You can see electrolyte abnormalities or potentially arrhythmias as well. So even if there's not a STEMI, we still get a lot of information from that 12 lead, and you're still taking these patients to a ROSC center, either way, of course, which are also our STEMI centers. Next is the importance of maintaining adequate perfusion to the body. And we do this by treating and supporting blood pressure and by focusing on oxygenation and ventilation. After you get ROSC, grabbing a blood pressure as soon as possible will help you identify hypotension, which should be treated right away with IV fluid bolus and also simultaneous norepinephrine based on our guidelines. Norepinephrine can always be turned off if blood pressures improve and starting it early for any hypotension will minimize that time period of poor perfusion that continues to damage the patient's brain after ROSC. Your blood pressure goals are normal blood pressure goals, MAP of 65 or greater, or systolic of at least 100. And again, use IV fluids and norepinephrine liberally to get your patients there quickly. And finally, oxygenation and ventilation. During ACLS, patients should of course be bagged with high flow oxygen. And when you get ROSC, it's reasonable to just continue that high flow oxygen all the way to the hospital, even if, SB, even if you can get your SpO2 to 100%. Cardiac arrest patients develop significant global oxygen depletion in all tissues, because even the best chest compressions and bagging can't compare to the efficient pumping of the heart at baseline. So crank up that oxygen and place it in an advanced airway to help facilitate high quality oxygenation. And just so you know, long-term, there can be kind of complications from keeping patients at 100% uh, oxygen, but during the relatively short duration of your transport, this is not gonna be a problem. So simply aim for highest O2 levels you can get after cardiac arrests. All patients should also have end CO2 being monitored continuously. And here the goal is really just normal and tidal CO2 levels between 35 and 45. The goal with ventilations is not to overventilate your patient, which would drive down and tidal CO2 readings. So keep your rate of breathing normal and slow it down if your end tidal is drifting below 35. The reason this is so important is that breathing too fast causes low end tidal CO2 levels that actually causes the brain to vasoconstrict and decrease its own blood flow, which is a normal physiologic response. But of course, after a cardiac arrest, the brain has already been damaged by low blood flow. So keeping end tidal CO2 in a normal range will help ensure the brain is getting a normal amount of blood flow 
and therefore a normal amount of oxygen to prevent further ischemic damage to the brain in this really fragile state. So to summarize Roscare, get that 12 lead, bolus IV fluid and start norepinephrine quickly as needed for hypotension, turn up your oxygen and control your rate of bagging to keep that entitled CO2 between 35 and 45. Thanks everyone. Thanks Dr. Grover and thanks Dr. Branham once again. Uh, some really good reminders and some good information in there uh, regarding our uh, assessments and treatments of our cardiac arrest patients. As we go through and we've certainly all had our cardiac arrest patients, um, they happen uh, ever too frequently. Uh, we are collecting a lot of that data uh, and it, we do this internally within the system and we help export that out to uh, the cardiac arrest registry uh, to enhance survival program uh, headed up by the American Red Cross. Uh, so join us today just to give us a brief overview of what CARES is. Uh, we have uh, Lori Altenhofen, who is a CARES program specialist with uh, the American Red Cross. So welcome, Lori. Uh, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate being here and uh, just kind of giving everybody a little bit of an overview about the CARES program. And so uh, CARES is actually an acronym and it stands for the Cardiac Arrest Registry to Enhance Survival. It is a program that was established in 2004 as a collaboration between the Centers for Disease Control, the CDC, and Emory University based out of Atlanta and their Woodruff Health Sciences Center. Uh, it was created to go ahead and track out of hospital cardiac arrests from basically the time that that 911 call comes into dispatch uh, and through hospital uh, discharge um, if the patient survives. Um, and it also documents and looks at the neurological score or the neurological um, capability of that individual upon discharge. And so the CARES program is actually, it's a database. It's the largest database that tracks those out of hospital cardiac arrests. And our EMS agencies do a lot of work to go ahead and enter the data into those uh, or into that database uh, so that they can go ahead and benefit. And there are so many different benefits uh, for our EMS agencies that do participate with CARES, uh, as well as our hospitals and hospital systems. So there are over 400,000 cardiac arrests recorded to date in the CARES database. Uh, and those data elements that are collected by EMS, uh, you know, really involve all five links uh, or whichever cardiac chain of survival uh, an individual is looking at. And, um, you know, the national data uh, is then, or well, the, ag the data is aggregated um, annually by our CARES staff. And uh, then there are a variety of different reports that our EMS agencies and our hospitals and hospital systems alike uh, have the ability to run. And they can run those reports at any time during the year. Uh, and those reports and the data that they put into uh, CARES really helps our agencies and our hospitals and all providers in that healthcare continuum 
uh, utilize the data for quality assurance and quality improvement processes. So for instance, uh, there was an agency that joined CARES in Wisconsin a little bit earlier this year, and they utilized the data uh, with their participation to determine where they needed another station uh, for their EMS responders to go ahead and go out from so that they could improve the survival rate uh, for those people in their community uh, that uh, suffer a cardiac arrest. And, um, you know, it, it, it's just a, a, a really great program. Uh, and it, you know, the results that, that we see from our EMS agencies participating in CARES uh, really shows us that bystander intervention is critical. And so that's one of the other uh, aspects of the program is that a lot of um, our agencies, our, a lot of our government uh, agencies, communities, and then first responder or non-transport providers, you know, start these initiatives to train more people in our communities so that they can go ahead and uh, provide bystander intervention CPR or so that they know how to use an AED and they know where to go ahead and find them or to try and find them. And really that our bystanders and any intervention for someone who has suffered a cardiac arrest is really critical. And so we, we pride ourselves on, um, you know, the fact that this is a QAQI um, health surveillance activity, uh, and it really does provide a lot of data to our EMS agencies uh, and our hospitals and hospital systems as well. That's terrific, Lori. Uh, thanks so much. Uh, I, I think our listeners are going to hear over and over again the importance of bystander CPR. Uh, it's great that there's now this database that you know Milwaukee County and so many others are participating in to share this data to really help improve those cardiac arrest outcomes. Uh, so Lori, thank you for joining us today. You're very, uh, very welcome. Thanks again for having me. Uh, again, you know, we appreciate everybody getting the word out that, you know, we need to train more individuals um, and uh, participation in the CARES program really does provide a, a great way for our EMS agencies to uh, do some quality assurance and quality improvement processes. Thanks so much. Uh, on the topic of CARES data, uh, recently within the system, we received our annual report uh, with, of CARES data looking at the Milwaukee County system and how we're doing in comparison. Uh, so I'm gonna grab Linda Matrish. Uh, now, in looking at the report, it's fairly sizable. So I'm guessing we're not gonna have time to dive into every little bit and piece, but uh, Linda, if you can give us a, a general idea how we're doing, uh, in comparison to the rest of the state, maybe the rest of the country for what's reported in our cardiac arrest. Thanks, Jeff. Um, when we talk about CARES, uh, first of all, like why are we in CARES and how can this help us to improve outcomes? Uh, when we measure our out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, we can use this to inform policy decisions um, to help advance resuscitation, improve outcomes. And that is our goal to improve outcomes. Um, when we look at our, our data, both system-wide, statewide, and nationally, there are some things that we can't modify, um, age, gender, race, et cetera, but we can review for um, areas of need. And when we look at things we can modify, um, such as EMS 
uh, and hospital factors, we, uh, we can look at things like patients transported versus worked on scene, uh, pre-hospital drug therapies, procedures and policies. And basically this allows us to assess our system and agency performance and benchmark at local, state and national levels. <clears throat> we were into our sixth year of CARES inclusion. We have five full years of CARES data, including national outcomes. And this past year, the state of Wisconsin jumped in as well. So we can also look at state data. Um, CARES includes 28 full state registries, 800 EMS agencies. It's a catchment area of about 140 million people. So um, of course, where do we stand on, and how do we compare? Um, so some background on the uh, cardiac arrests that we include in CARES. These are non-traumatic arrests. They do not include DNR cases um, and they cover all ages. For 2020, we had 1,277 out-of-hospital cardiac arrests, and that was a 19% increase from the year prior. Is this due to COVID? Um, one of the great things about looking at CARES data is we can identify trends from, from year to year. Um, we know that typically the month with the most arrests in our system is March, and in 2020, that meant 143 arrests, which was, which was uh, very high for our system, and it included one day in particular where we had nine arrests, where our average is about three arrests per day. Um, looking at our demographics first, how we compare to the state and the nation, our median age for the county is 61 for our, for our arrests, I should say, which is lower than the state and national averages of 63 years old and 65. Our county has a higher proportion uh, compared to the state and the nation of females where we have 42% female, 58 male. And we also have a higher uh, percentage of uh, black and African-American um, identified races. Our cardiac arrest um, percentage for, for that race was 39% compared to the national average of 23. As far as locations go, we compare pretty similarly to the state and the nation when we identify the location of home, uh, public or, or nursing, nursing home. So as we review some of this data, keep in mind how our demographics are different than the uh, national. When we look at our overall survival rate for 2020, this is all rhythms our survival rate was 10.5%. And that was after a high of 13% the, the previous year, which was an increase from the few years before. Our 10.5% um, save rate was higher than the national average of 9%. Uh, but when we look at the state of Wisconsin, we're lower than the rest of the state where the state average is 12%. When we look at bystander witness arrests, versus unwitnessed arrests. Our um, survival rate for bystander witness arrests for the county uh, was 19.8% for 2020. Uh, that is higher than the national average of 13%. For unwitnessed, whether you look at the state, the nation or our county, it's low, uh, it's 5% for us and that's, um, that's pretty much in line with, with state and, and the nation. 
The looking at public CPR and AED use um, for, for the Milwaukee County, we have a 30.4% uh, rate of bystander CPR. Now this has steadily increased over the last five years. Um, it is lower than the national average, which is actually 40%. Um, and it's slightly lower than the state. Uh, when we look at AED use, we're only at 7%. However, the prior year of 2019, we had, we had a AED use rate of 17.1% um, for bystanders, which is great. So we'll be eager to see when um, people are uh, out in public more and you would expect that witness arrests, you know, may have more implementation of AEDs if we see an increase in that area. The national average is only 9%. So uh, and the state is 10, so across the board, um, it, it, it can be low. For um, one thing that we, we want to, to note is that when you look at some of the states across the nation who have good involvement in CARES data and report uh, a very full registry of AED and CPR usage, it is very possible to obtain a high CPR public imp implementation rate. Uh, we can see this in, in several states, um, including that have rates as high as 50 to 60%. Um, on the West Coast, there's several states that have rates that high. So our state is generally on the low end. Um, when it comes to AED use, again, as I, I mentioned, it's pretty low across the country in general and definitely an area for improvement. Um, let's talk about our, our cardiac arrest. Uh, I mentioned that um, CPR rate by bystanders has increased steadily um, up until last, uh, and our AED rate was also um, rising until last year. Um, so let's look at what we call our Utstein numbers. So these are witness arrests, shockable rhythms. For Milwaukee County, our highest survival rate and our best neurological outcomes are achieved um, in this group. For 2020, we had a survival rate of 41% for uh, patients whose arrest was witnessed and they presented in a shockable rhythm. And it rose to 55% if there was CPR and or an AED um, utilized by the public. Uh, and this is much higher than the national average. So when you consider that our CPR and AED usage may be on the low end, but we have great survival when they are implemented. You know, this is an area where we can, we can really make some strides in the future. Just think if we could continue to grow bystander CPR and AED use. Uh, regarding our rhythms in general, uh, whether witnessed or unwitnessed, asystole is the most common rhythm, 58% overall. PEA, pulses electrical activity is the next, that's at about 21%. And VFib, is our uh, least identified initial rhythm at about 11%. When we look at EMS fitness arrests, um, we, we have a rate of about 35% survival. So remember when we had that uh, uh, bystander witness arrest, we have a rate that's um, much higher when it comes to VFib, even higher than EMS witness. And you would, I would guess that would be a function of perhaps time early identification of arrest, um, maybe uh, if you're, uh, maybe it's early in the event in general, 
Um, so again, this is something that I'm kind of intrigued to look more into as well. Um, again, when we look at just all arrests, witnessed versus unwitnessed, whether public or EMS, just having your event witnessed increases your chance for survival by two to three times. In summary, CPR rate, our, ours in, in our system is much lower than the national average. Our AED use is close to the national average, is overall low in general. We do great with our Utstein patients, these shockable rhythm witness arrest. Um, improving CPR and AED uh, implementation in public, um, a great area for um, improved outcomes. Demographics, we are different than the nation and the state. And then witness arrest, best chance for survival. And in um, our county, public witnessed CPR AED shockable is the best chance. And all around unwitnessed arrests provide poor outcomes. Um, just a reminder to our crews, reliable data is needed to measure uh, these factors. It's important to accurately document at patient times, first monitored rhythm, prior CPR or AED use, time of ROSC, and patient name. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks, Linda. A lot of good information there, a lot of data, a lot of, uh, a lot of numbers. So I guess the question then is, what do we do with these numbers? How does this impact our providers out in the field? And to hopefully answer some of those questions, uh, Dr. Engel. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, I appreciate you giving me a couple minutes to talk about how we kind of use this CARES data to make system evaluations and changes and what the providers can use this data for on the front lines or uh, every, on everyday care. So let's kind of start looking at with this information from a systems perspective, how we kind of use it. So not only do we look at where Milwaukee County is performing below state and national averages, but we also look where Milwaukee County is excelling. For example, let's look at sustained Ross rates in Milwaukee County. Our averages of sustained Ross in the county are 33%, where nationally the averages are 27%. Now we all know a better measure of success is good neurological outcome, but looking at sustained Ross, we can ask ourselves how and why we're better in our county. I always say that we have the best EMS providers in the country, but was there something else that our system is doing well to increase these numbers? Do we have specific educational standards? Do we have high yield training we conduct? Do we have guidelines with specific actions or specialized equipment that makes the difference to increase the sustainable ROS rates? If we identify some of these reasons behind our successes, we can replicate those reasons to improve other avenues that the system may not be performing as well at. So looking at some areas where we're a little bit less successful than national averages, we kind of see that um, first and foremost, we have lower rates of bystander CPR, 33% versus 40% nationally that Linda also mentioned. We also have low rates of AED usage by the public, 11% versus 26% nationally. And then while we're not performing differently, we also note that we have very high rates of African-American um, African-Americans in our community experiencing cardiac arrest, 38% versus 23% nationally. So can we take our educational platform for awesome cardiac arrest management, make some changes slightly, and then kind of apply it to the areas where we're a little bit less successful and see if we can take those platforms and see if we can maybe increase the public who's uh, trained in CPR or use those platforms to better uh, access our AEDs throughout the county. 
Also, can we utilize these numbers to kind of speak with our state uh, legislators, our local government to find more creative ways to procure and place AEDs throughout the county? Knowing that our population seem to have a larger percentage of African-Americans experiencing cardiac arrest, can we utilize these numbers to specifically target these sections of our communities with increased access to CPR training, education, and AEDs to improve their outcome? This is kind of how we use this data on a big system level to improve population-based healthcare in the county. Now let's kind of flip it. Let's talk about what you can do as a provider on the front lines with this information. Well, first and foremost, I think that you should be an advocate for change. Talk with your departments and local government about ensuring that your communities have access to AEDs and individuals who are trained in CPR. You truly are a well-respected member of your community and you'll be listened to when you bring these ideas up. Next, recognize that while we're talking about population-based care here, every patient you encounter in the field is looking for you to be that person who makes the, the change to improve their outcome. 150% effort on every cardiac arrest and self-study with increasing your knowledge base on managing these situations, understanding the guidelines that are put forward to you and the pathophysiology behind cardiac arrest as a real responsibility of frontline EMS providers to improve the population-based data that we're seeing in cardiac arrest that's demonstrated by the CARES data. And finally, you know, I know that you may seem like you work so many codes and you have so few people who survive. Cardiac arrest really is a terminal endpoint for most individuals. These truly are only a subsect of, there truly are only a subsect of cardiac arrest that have a chance for being saved. Truly, unfortunately, we can't really pick those people out early in the course of a cardiac arrest. So everybody needs an aggressive initial resuscitation. And then recognize that while most patients aren't gonna survive, if everybody gets that very aggressive initial resuscitation and we work hard as a county on all cardiac arrests, we're gonna be able to improve our overall numbers for care and survival of patients in cardiac arrest throughout the county. So I kind of want you to take that back and think about, you know, we actually use this for system level changes and you can actually use this data on the front lines every day to make a difference with what you do. So I appreciate your time. Thanks for what you do out there. Thanks, Dr. Angel. A lot of good information there. Uh, a nice little call to action. Uh, get our providers out there working, uh, helping to improve those outcomes, improve those numbers. Uh, as we dig a little bit deeper into some of the numbers, uh, I know there are some items that within our uh, CQI group that are tracked. Uh, we look at key performance indicators. Uh, and I'm going to grab Dr. Chin, who can kind of walk us through some of that. Yeah, Jeff. So thanks for having me. I'll just take a couple of minutes just to talk about kind of on the on the case level, uh, what some key performance indicators and CQI data elements that we look at for our cardiac arrest patients are. Uh, now, keep in mind that these um, these benchmarks and data elements that we're collecting are really based on um, oftentimes American Heart Association um, metrics or EMS Compass metrics, which uh, if you heard was initially a NHTSA funded project to look at benchmarks for EMS that is now transitioned into, I think, what is now called the National EMS Quality Alliance. But uh, basically the, the reason for using these particular metrics is that they're evidence-based and they have patient-centered um, outcomes that go behind them. So you're looking at trying to uh, follow these metrics because they demonstrate uh, a service that provides a high quality that has a good patient outcome uh, at the end of it. And so when we look 
look at cardiac arrest in particular, um, we do generate basically what's, what looks like an OEM kind of report card for cardiac arrest. And so uh, we'll run through a couple of the metrics that are collected on there and just give you an idea. Uh, again, all of these are based on those particular um, uh, outcome measures from those uh, uh, guideline institutions uh, nationally there. So we look at CPR quality. So one of the things we obviously take into account is uh, the compression fraction. So we're looking for compression fractions, um, you know, the higher, the better, generally greater than 75% is kind of used as our uh, goal benchmark there. We, we look at the compression ratio. So again, all this data is coming from uh, being abstracted from those old monitors uh, and, and the other devices that we use in our system. We're looking at compression rates. We're looking at compression depth. And we know that um, the appropriate depth and recoil is an important part of having good outcomes for our patients undergoing cardiac arrest. Uh, in regards to airway, we're looking to ensure that patients with airways have uh, uh, waveform capnography being utilized. We know that's the best way to kind of track cardiac arrest throughout looking and following end tidal CO2 is a good marker for the potential for ROSC uh, or other indicators. Um, we're looking at the time to waveform capnography application. Um, for those that are intubating patients, we're looking at the obviously the video laryngoscope use. Uh, and, and looking for ways to optimize our ability to, to QA um, devices uh, and, and the ability to record in the future. Uh, ventilation, ventilation rates per minute, um, there's uh, you know, a focus on ensuring we're delivering an adequate amount of ventilations that are within the HA guidelines uh, and our guidelines for ventilating patients uh, with both advanced airways and uh, with BVM masks. Um, we separate out also shockable rhythms. So looking at, you know, how long to recognition of a shockable rhythm and then when the first shock was delivered after that. Uh, our goal is really a, less than, you know, 180 seconds um, from the Zoll being at the patient if the, they're found to be in a shockable rhythm to have that first shock delivered. Um, for refractory VFib, uh, we know that uh, we have a particular guideline that addresses this and um, looking at kind of our compliance with that guideline in terms of how many defibrillation attempts, whether we've given our amiodarone doses, uh, we also look at limiting our epidosis. We know that, you know, in our guideline, it suggests limiting the epidosis to three for those patients that are in refractory, um, you know, VFib or VTAC rhythms. Um, we look at the compliance with changing pad placement. So whether after three shocks, um, we're looking at, you know, kind of pad placement changes. Uh, and then obviously uh, early transport or online medical control consults for these refractory patients um, to get them moving to the hospital if that's the most appropriate thing for that particular patient. Um, time to epinephrine for those non-shockable rhythms is another metric that we'll track, um, you know, basically from the time the first ALS unit gets there to the time the first epinephrine is delivered. Um, for those patients that unfortunately don't uh, progress to ROSC, we look at, you know, the following of TOR criteria um, for that. We look at, you know, uh, making sure that providers are using the checklist for determination of, uh, you know, termination of resuscitations and appropriately engaging online medical control for that. Uh, and then for destination, obviously, part of the things we look at is, uh, um, you know, whether you transported that patient to the, a ROSC receiving facility. One of, the, one of the easiest benchmarks that we follow is, again, transport to the appropriate receiving facility uh, for these types of patients. And so that's one of the metrics we track. Um, so throughout all this, again, we generate kind of a report card for each one of these cardiac arrests, looking at all those particular benchmarks, uh, and then kind of uh, feed that data back into the CQI system for us to trend and benchmark as an entire system. 
Um, and so I think, uh, you know, by collecting all this data, we hope to be able to provide individualized feedback to our providers throughout the system on their performance for any particular cardiac arrest. Again, from the, from the global perspective of CARES uh, to the very individual level of an individual cardiac arrest with those particular providers. Um, so um, that's the kind of service and, and quality data that we're going to track with that. And uh, we hope that it's beneficial to moving the system forward, as all the other uh, presenters have mentioned. Uh, and with that, I'll, I'll turn it back to Jeff. Thanks, Dr. Chin. Uh, once again, sounded like a broken record. A lot of good information there. Um, I know for those listening, been a lot of numbers, a lot of data, a lot of information thrown out today. Uh, but really what we're finding, we're, we're doing a, a good job within the system with our cardiac arrest patients. There's always and will ever be room for improvement. Uh, and we are continuously kind of tracking that information, seeing where, what areas we can make those improvements, uh, how we can improve patient outcomes. And the biggest thing, you know, looking at the CARES data and reiterating from Dr. Weston and, and the other docs and the rest of the team on here, uh, bystander CPR, early compressions, early defibrillation. So if you can convince one other person to go out and take a CPR class, uh, be available to do that immediate compressions, uh, encourage your municipalities to look at ways of putting AEDs in public places. All of these things greatly impact the outcome and the survivability of our patients that go into sudden cardiac arrest. So strongly encourage that bystander CPR in the communities within your families, your friends. Uh, and I think we can continue to make a positive difference uh, in the lives of those that, that suffer from sudden cardiac arrest. So uh, with that, I want to thank everyone that was able to join us today for this discussion. Uh, thank you for taking the time out to listen and stay safe. We'll see you next time.